you believe in something this morning? Why don't you believe in a church? Why don't you believe in the glory of dominion that God gave us the power to build a building on a hill that stands for something in the community, that we're not afraid to stand up for what we believe in and tell the lawmakers and the rulers in this nation and every other nation in the world, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He's coming back and you better repent of your sins or you're going to answer for them. And God cares about this building and He cares about the churches that sprinkle the landscape of this nation. And if you go to Europe today, you'll see cathedral after cathedral that were beautiful and they're empty. And if we don't get right in this nation, that's going to happen. Look around you at the sloth. Look at the empty pews. Look at the big gaps. They didn't want to hear the truth. Believe in something today. Welcome to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the sermon. So I want to eliminate a couple of things so that we can move on. I want you to know that Jesus was not born in sin. Jesus did not sin. He didn't sin as a child. He didn't sin as a teenager. He didn't sin as a young adult. He didn't start sinning when he entered the ministry. He certainly didn't sin any time prior to going to the cross. Therefore, I also want you to know, Jesus wasn't born in poverty. He didn't grow up in poverty. He wasn't in poverty as a young person. He wasn't in poverty as a teenager. He wasn't in poverty in his 20s. He didn't enter into poverty on the day he began public ministry and he did not crescendo his poverty at the cross heaping all of your poverty on top of his own he became poor on the cross in the same place he became sin on the cross in the same place that he defeated death on the cross the atonement takes place on the cross so your faith need not be undermined to break free of the shackles of bondage caused by sin, poverty being one of them and sickness being the other. Let's go to this passage of Scripture. Go with me to Luke chapter 9. Turn to Luke chapter 9. We will lay it to rest today and we'll move on next week. But under any chance that there is still any doubt in your mind about the myths you have been told about Jesus and his poverty, I will slay it before you today. There was an occasion where Jesus was not received with hospitality. There was an occasion when Jesus was traveling and he was not treated very respectfully. It was an occasion when he needed something and an entire community, the city council, said no. They were dishonorable to him. It was toward the end of his ministry, at the pinnacle of his fame, no less, when he was a household word in all of Palestine and beyond. Everyone had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And he was on his way to Jerusalem 
walking. And it was a long journey. And we know from reading the scriptures, Jesus would get thirsty and need to rest his feet too because he was in the agonies demonstrating how grace defeats the struggles we face as human beings living on earth post-sin after Adam and Eve corrupted it all. And Jesus wanted to get to Jerusalem. He didn't want to take the long road. He wanted to take the most efficient path for his journey. And he was prepared to pass through a town of Samaritans. And in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, Jesus sent James and John ahead of his entourage into the Samaritan village because traveling through their village was the shortest, most reasonable route to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus sent two men ahead for a reason because Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies and Jews were typically not even allowed to pass through their lands. It was as if if you're a Jew and you go to the county controlled by the Samaritans, you're not allowed to set foot in their limits, in the county limits. You are to go around. It was bitter. And so Jesus sent James and John ahead as, as emissaries to ask humbly their permission to allow him to pass through so that he could get to Jerusalem without unnecessarily wearing out all of his men that were traveling with him. And and let me just bring up, as we speak of that entourage, let me just remind you that the Bible says that a man that does not provide for his family, a a man that does not provide for his wife and his children, uh, according to Jewish law, a man that lives like that is worse than an infidel. And what a lot of people fail to understand is Jesus had 12 disciples. We know from study that many of them had wives and children. They had whole families that they had to take care of. We know from the book of Luke that Jesus had a group of women who we see in the scriptures as his financial contributors and donors who continually financed his ministry from the beginning of his announcement somewhere early in the ministry And we actually see those same donors, those same financial contributors that made sure he had the money he needed when he needed it to accomplish his mission. We find them even all the way at the cross. So Jesus had a reasonable, practical, financial sustaining system. And when that system itself of the women, this group of very wealthy, well-to-do people who financed his ministry, when their finances became inadequate at any moment, Jesus then relied upon the miraculous to pick up the slack. Coin in a fish's mouth. Bread and fish multiplied. And so what you need to know is, according to Jewish law, if it is true that a man that does not provide for his family is worse than an infidel, you need to understand the level of finances that came into the ministry of Jesus Christ were considerable. How many of you have had to hire one person to devote his entire work life, whether that be in our culture 40 or 60 hours a week, to simply carrying around your money? 
there was enough money coming into the ministry of Jesus Christ that he was able to pay a good, noble salary to all of his disciples who were then able to adequately provide for their wives and children through the money that came into the ministry of Jesus. Primarily through these women in Luke chapter 9, I think it was Luke 9, who were his financial contributors. He had so much money, in fact, that Judas Iscariot was assigned to take care of all financial matters and to carry their sacks of money. Judas, feeling that the money was so much and they had such a surplus of it, was convinced in his own mind that he could steal occasionally from the sacks and it would not even be noticed. So what this means is Jesus Christ brought in enough revenue to fulfill his needs for ministry, not even counting the supernatural provisions. He brought in enough money to pay the salaries and take care of at least 12 whole families and one known thief. And they still had enough to get the job done. So this entourage is approaching Jerusalem and Samaria is in the way. And so Jesus sends the two men ahead. And James and John ask permission, can Jesus of Nazareth pass through your land? And they responded, no! Go away! We've heard of you. We want no part of this. You take your circus and you go around our land. And James and John were incensed. They were very angry with the attitudes, no doubt, that they received from that city council. It made them boiling mad. And Jesus had to deal with their anger over that. Regardless of how disrespectful and rotten they were, and how probably provocative the city council was with its attitude and the way they responded to a polite request, we know that it didn't deserve the death penalty and so they actually, in their own rage, came back and said, kill them, <laughs> to Jesus. And Jesus was like, being snarky and disrespectful is not good, but it's not probably worth the death penalty, guys. You need to calm down. And then Jesus says something that is a part of the, the matrix of this impoverished Jesus nonsense that is crippling the faith of the body of Christ and keeping the body, I believe, in a significant way from really having a revelation of our mandate to succeed, our mandate to take dominion, our mandate, if I can refer to my own vision, of the elders beating back the darkness on a path and pushing it out of the way because of their strength and their wisdom so that the young people have a path to walk on, to go as far as they possibly can until the elders can't do it anymore and are buried. We have a mandate to take ground. And so Jesus on this particular night, having to calm down James and John, who want to kill the city councilmen who were smart alecks. He tells them, calm down. 
Yes, it's disrespectful. It doesn't deserve the death penalty. You need to take it down about 19 notches. And then Jesus, empathizing, realizing it is a problem. The Samaritans are not being respectful. Probably not good. Probably not wise for that city council to say no to God. But they do it every week, don't they? And then Jesus makes this comment in this context. Tonight, foxes have a hole. Birds of the air have a nest. But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Because Jesus wasn't allowed to pass through on his way to Jerusalem, he would not have any hotel or any place of accommodation And it was like a little bit of a deja vu, isn't it? From the story of Mary and Joseph on their way to be taxed and there was no room in the inn. And here Jesus is again, deja vu. This happened to my parents. I I wanted to find a place to lay down and sleep because I got a long journey ahead to get to Jerusalem. And they won't even let me come in the city limits. Foxes have holes, birds have nests but I can't even find a place to lay down tonight. And that verse has been taken as a so-called proof text to say, see, Jesus was so poor, he was homeless. And now you know the true story. Or as the famous radio host once said, and now the rest of the story. You're listening to Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Don't miss the conclusion of this sermon after these messages. Hello everyone, it's Pastor Kerry. You know, I remember a pivotal moment in American history and I sat and I watched this drama unfold in Florida concerning Terry Schiavo, who was this woman, she had gone on an extreme diet to lose weight and had lost consciousness. And the next thing you know, a few years later, they're literally euthanizing her in a nursing home. I was horrified when I watched that happen, and it set me into a journey to discover and answer some questions that are very important, especially in the field of the political world. Should Christians, for example, simply submit to the possible consequences of decisions, or should they make decisions exclusively based upon the Word of God? Now, that sounds simple to ask that question, and people flippantly answer it, but you'll find that the answer is very clear in the Bible, and it's also very troubling to modern Christians. Very few Christians truly live out the correct answer to that question. Well, I've put together a cartoon series. It's a whiteboard project where I teach you through some steps of logic and then had an artist in the church draw out the illustrations of what I'm trying to convey. It's really a remarkable thing, and it's free. All you have to do is go to the website to enjoy it, and I'll take you down the road of the journey I went on long ago answering that important question. Should Christians make decisions in life based exclusively on what God's Word says, or should they bow down to the threat of consequences? Because you realize sometimes when you make right decisions, there are very painful consequences. And here's where you need to go. I'll give you the website twice. Steps2PoliticalEpiphany.com That's Steps2PoliticalEpiphany.com 
www.thepowerofprayer.com. Please enjoy the presentation. It could really change your life. Thank you for listening and God bless. To Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com. Thank you for tuning in. 1 Timothy 5, 8, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus not only provided for his own house, He provided for the houses of 12 men and their families who traveled with him. Jesus did own a home. The Bible references that Jesus had a place that he called home. And we read about it in the scriptures, and everyone seems to ignore that little verse. And then finally, we're left with critics who don't understand dominion teaching, who insist upon Jesus' earthly poverty even though they can't produce a scrap of evidence that's honestly interpreted, they try to substantiate their teachings, finally falling desperately upon this one last verse. Go with me, please, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're back to the Christmas story now. We're eliminating the last two little scraps of disingenuous interpretation of the Scripture that undermines your faith and your ability and your mandate to take dominion because Christ conquered poverty on your behalf so that you could do what Adam refused to do. I've never found anyone who wanted to argue that Adam was poor. He was very, very rich. He owned the whole world. And how is it that Christ could be called the second Adam and be very, very poor? Makes no sense. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, and they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. This last phrase, verse 24 entirely actually, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons what you need to understand is that Mosaic law specifically says that it is best for an infant with its parents to make sacrifice unto the Lord to offer a lamb without spot or blemish. But a provision is made in the law of Moses that if the family cannot afford a lamb to be slain without spot or blemish, they will be allowed under the law of Moses to substitute it 
by purchasing a less expensive pair of turtle doves and two pigeons, and the Lord will accept that offering. And so those who insist upon the poverty of Christ and the poverty of Mary and Joseph and that Christ was born poor, lived poor, grew up poor, never really did conquer poverty until he was resurrected. Those who keep that nonsense going go to this passage of Scripture and they cry out, really with frail evidence, see, this is the proof of all the other Scriptures we have perverted. This proves we're right about all the other wrong interpretations because the law of Moses says that only parents who were poor would buy turtle doves and young pigeons. A couple of things to bring up. One, it is possible at certain times because of the demand of having spotless lambs that one can run out and a substitute is necessary. I'll just throw that out for, for free. But secondly, I want to say that Levitical law did say this. And with all the evidence that I've presented to the contrary to show you with Scripture that it's really not even plausible that Mary and Joseph were poor in the sense of the idea of poverty, which is caused by sin. Biblically, poverty is always the cause of a form of laziness. There are people who are hardworking physically but lazy mentally. There are people who are very, very gifted mentally and lazy physically. Any form of laziness, the Scripture says, brings you to poverty. So you can be a hard worker, a fast worker, a diligent worker, and, and, and not even walk at a normal pace, like run, dash back and forth from digging the ditch and throwing the dirt. You can be moving fast, but you might have been lazy intellectually and not done good in school and sloughed off and refused to go to college. You don't like book learning. So that's a form of laziness, and you'll suffer because of your laziness mentally, you will not have riches. And because of others who are geniuses, very high IQs and just as lazy as a slug, won't get up and walk across the room to flip on a television. Somebody else has got to do it for them. You can be a genius and even get a Ph.D. and struggle financially. And it's because of a different kind of a physical laziness. The Bible always says poverty is caused by laziness and sin. And so we've made it very clear it's not theologically possible for the Bible to call Mary and Joseph virtuous, righteous, pure people if they are lazy, slothful people in poverty. Wouldn't it seem strange that in this one case of history, Mary and Joseph believing, because they've been told by angels, that their son is the lamb to be slain from the foundations of the world. Wouldn't it be a little odd for the lamb, symbolized by tens of thousands of literal lambs sacrificed for hundreds of years, if the lamb slain before the foundations of the world, came before to pay homage to Mosaic law, and the very lamb, wouldn't it be strange if the parents had offered a lamb to be slain for the lamb? 
I think that Mary and Joseph did not use a lamb because they believed their son was the lamb. And the condition of poverty symbolized in the use of the pigeon pointed to a moment in time when the lamb would become the sacrifice taking on your poverty. So it was spiritually symbolic of the poverty the lamb slain from the foundation of the world would take upon himself as 2 Corinthians has told us. Though he were, were rich, he became poor that through his poverty for your sakes you might become rich. It is symbolic. It makes beautiful sense that no lamb could ever take the place of the lamb. Jesus became poor on the cross. And I conclude that Christ Jesus, Zoe abundance, John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly, is a reminder that he has come to restore your mandate to take righteous dominion. Jesus himself deals a final blow to the myth of his poverty prior to the cross, the myth that he was poor at any time before the cross. When he says this, when you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Who has all dominion? The Father. Job 25, 2 says, dominion and all belong to God. He establishes order in the heights of the heavens. Daniel 4.3 says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Psalm 22.28 says, For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15 through 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all live. But each in turn, in this order, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. I would insert emphasis added after he has destroyed all dysfunctional dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. John 14, 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And folks, the Father has dominion. And so must you take dominion on his behalf, partner with the God of heaven who created us, and accomplish this by yielding your property instinct to the Lord God's law and yield your sexual instinct to the law of God. And you will be blessed and you will conquer sin You'll be free of it, you will conquer poverty, and you will conquer sickness and even death. You'll be raised back to life again in the resurrection through dominion. 
This has been Beyond the Walls with Pastor Kerry Gordon of Cornerstone World Outreach in Sioux City, Iowa. Check out our website at beyondthewallsradio.com.